0: Well, as you know, last week we completed our look at the book of Zechariah, and I just must be uh, transparent and honest with you. Zechariah was wonderfully difficult uh, to listen to, to preach, and to learn, but it was tremendously impactful for me, and I'm glad we had the opportunity to walk through it. But I'm also glad that the Lord gives us a book of Psalms, where in the Psalter we are able to explore and to navigate our emotions, our thoughts, all of who we are. And this is what the psalter does. It's, it's the song book of God's people. And what do songs do? They, they touch our hearts. They touch our lives. They, they, they resonate with our emotions. And this then is what we're going to be doing this summer. We're going to be walking through over the next few weeks up until Labor Day. Uh, we're going to be walking through various psalms, psalms of praise. We're going to have a few guest preachers come and do the same as I'm going to be uh, in and out of town over the course of the next couple months. But I'm looking forward to preaching some of these psalms and to hopefully allow the Lord to prick us, our hearts, and to play the heartstrings of our lives. And Psalm 34, where we're going to be today, is one of those psalms, a psalm of praise. But before I ask you to rise and we read God's Word, I want to give you a context to this psalm. David wrote this psalm, and he wrote it at a particular time and place with a particular purpose of where he was at in his life. So we need to rewind a little bit. And if you have your Bible or your app or wherever it is that you were finding yourselves in the Bible this morning, I would invite you to keep a finger in First Samuel 21. Now, if you are ever wanting some drama and excitement in your life, just go read 1 and 2 Samuel and the story of David and Saul and all of these things. And it is tremendously exciting. and It's full of riveting twists and turns. But 1 Samuel 21 is interesting. David has just been anointed king or recently been anointed king. And um, not too long in the past, he had defeated some guy called Goliath with some stones. And he, he killed this Philistine giant And if you remember the story of David Goliath, after David had killed Goliath, what happened? The the, the army of Israel pursued the army of Philistine, and the Philistines were scattered, and they ran back to a city called Gath in Philistia. And it was a a fairly large city, but most of the Philistine army had been destroyed by the, the, the army of Israel. But those who remained went back to this city called Gath. Okay, so that's a little bit further in the past. But now, when David's writing this psalm, he's on the heels of an important event in his life. You see, because in the culture at the time and in the context of where David and Saul were at, it says to us in Samuel that the women sang songs about David because that's what we do about our heroes. We sing songs about our heroes. And the song was, Saul has killed his thousands, but David, now David, he's killed his tens of thousands. So Saul, being the insecure leader that he is, seeks to kill David. So David's forced to flee. And he's forced to flee Israel. And it's interesting where he goes. So remember now that David has killed Goliath. He's destroyed the Philistine army. But there are still some that remain. So where does David flee to in 1 Samuel 21? David makes a decision to flee for his life to a place called Gath. Well, why in the wide world would David go back to this place? A place where they're going to recognize him, for he is the one that killed Goliath, because that was a monumental moment in the life of both countries. But perhaps, I think, why David flew to Gath was because that was the last place on earth that Saul would go to try and find him. Well, I'm going to go to my enemy's city and go there. So David flees to Gath, and lo and behold... Somebody recognizes him. Shocker. They recognize him and they imprison him. And they they seek to put him before the king of Philistine. Well, David says, well, I just have now gone from the fire to the fire pit. Like where the fire actually is. And he says, I have to make some kind of a change here. My life is in peril. So what does he do? He pretends that he's a madman. His spittle is on his beard. He begins to claw at the walls. He he unkeeps himself and pretends to be a madman. And in those days, if you had a mental illness, you were just cast off out of the city. You were not dealt with. You just were left alone because they didn't quite know what to do with you. So they just shoved you away. And this is what David's hoping for. Sure enough, they bring David to the king and he's like, I've got enough problems on my own. I don't need you to bring this guy who's clearly mentally ill into my throne room. Take him away. And so David is led away and he's released. And he gives thanks to the Lord that he's released from the wrath of the king of Philistine. Psalm 34. Please rise as we read God's word together. Hear the reading of God's word. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers Him out of them all. He keeps all His bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. So far to the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the grass will wither and the flowers will fade as you tell us, but your word will stand firm and true forever. Lord, we pray that you would hold that promise true this day. Guide my words. Mold and shape those gathered here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Psalm 34 is what theologians call an acrostic poem. What that means is that each stanza is beginning with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So alpha, and it goes on and on, like A, B, C, D, E, so on and so forth. So each stanza would be an A, then a B, then a C, then a D. The design of this was that people would be able to sing it by memory very easily. It's it's a mechanism by which to help, specifically, children to memorize and to understand a poem or a song. This is how this is constructed. So just a little bit of information as to how Psalm 34 is constructed and, and why it is the way that it is. It's important to note that because... David, the psalm writer, wants us to know and to understand and, and to, to take refuge in these words. That we would know the Lord our God and it would enter into our souls and we would just know the truth. We wouldn't have to think about it, it would just be part of who we are. And we're using this method to do so. But the question there are, there are a number of questions that David raises in Psalm 34. That are extremely important to who we are as Christians, as people that live in a city, as humans. One of those questions that I want to begin with here this morning is a simple one, yet it's hugely impactful. The question simply is this What are you pursuing today? What are you running after? What are you pursuing today? David, this psalm writer, says that we're pursuing two things. In our lives, we're pursuing quantity of life and quality of life. This is what Psalm 34 is putting before us. Each one of us wants something out of life. We want a long life, and we want a good life. However we want to define that, we want many days, and we want those days to be wonderful and great. We don't want heartache. We don't want trial. We don't want mourning, crying, sorrow. We want a good, long life filled with joy and hope and excitement. Verse 12, if you look at verse 12 with me of Psalm 34, it says that very question. David asks that question. It's a bit of a rhetorical question, one that we know the answer to. But he says, what man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Or what woman is there that doesn't want a wonderful life with many days? Or everyone wants to live a life of peace and comfort for many days. So the question then is what are you pursuing? Chances are you're pursuing a life that's a long life, that's a good life. But how do I get there? That's the question. How do I have a long life that's full of good days? And what then does it look like if I actually get there? Will I recognize that I'm there? David, whose life has been spared, his was not cut off short, either by Goliath or the king of Philistine. He has been spared. His life continues. And he then begins to set out to answer that question, to show us what does it mean, what does it look like to have a good, long life. This is what Psalm 34 is all about. There are two categories to Psalm 34. And before I go on further, just need to recognize that many times when guys like me, preachers, stand up here and preach, we stand on the shoulders of many people that have gone before us. We do lots of research, we, we, we read commentaries, we read sermons, we listen to sermons, and this sermon is no different here this morning. Some, most of this sermon is Ryan's, but I just want to recognize sometimes that I stand on the shoulders of many men who are mar, far more intelligent than Ryan Arkhamah, and this is no different. But let's then dive in to Psalm 34. There are two categories to this psalm, and those two categories are this, fear And desire. Fear and desire. These are the things that we're most profoundly shaped by fear and desire. What are you pursuing this morning? Chances are you're pursuing things because you either desire it, you want it in your life, or you're running away from a fear that you don't want because it's scary if we look at our lives honestly and openly here today, chances are 99.9% of us are moving in a direction of desire or away from fear. The key of this psalm is not necessarily then to focus on our behaviors. Whether I'm in fear or desire, the key to this psalm that David's putting forward to us is becoming more like the one who spared David's life. It's to be more like the one who calls us to himself. Not the one who's pursuing our desires or fears, but to pursue him above all things. To have his name in our mouths at all times. This is Psalm 34 in a nutshell. So let's look at these two things. Let's look at these two themes in Psalm 34. Our fear and our desire. First of all, let's look at our fears. However we want to look at fear, we can look at it in a couple of different ways. This morning, the first way I want to look at fear is to examine right and wrong fears. And I want to first look at our wrong fears. We all have been afraid of something. I've shared in this church that when I was a boy, I was afraid and terrified that I, when I lay in my bed, there were going to be giraffes that would jump out from underneath the bed with their long necks, and the giraffes would bite me. I was terrified of giraffes when I was a kid because of their long necks, and then were sure they were under my bed. We're all afraid of something, whether it's giraffes or otherwise. All of us are terrified. At some point in our lives, these fears are paralyzing. Fears can imprison us. Fears can defeat us. Fears can confuse us. They can shame us. And they can sometimes prompt us to repent. We can use the words of David to understand these fears. He identifies his own fears throughout the psalm, doesn't he, if we pay close attention. In verse 4, he talks about it in this way. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from what? All my fears. He's openly, readily saying, I'm afraid, and the Lord brings me from it. In verse 6, he talks about it this way. This poor man cried out of the fear of poverty. In verse 6, he talks about it being troubled. He saved him out of his troubles. In verse 17, he delivers him out of all of his troubles. In verse 19, he speaks of the one who is afflicted. In verse 18, the one who is brokenhearted, the one who is crushed in spirit. These are some of the categories of fear that David addresses for us here this morning in Psalm 34. But we fear all of those experiences in some way, shape, or form, don't we? And we do everything that we can to avoid being afraid. Some of these fears manifest themselves in a few things and I just wrote down a couple of them. Our fear manifests itself in guilt, in pain, we're afraid of failure, we're afraid of rejection, we're afraid of being undervalued, we're afraid of losing control, we're afraid of death, we're afraid of being alone. We're afraid of heartbreak. And the list goes on and on and on and on. Fear then is debilitating, isn't it? We know this. Fear can be paralyzing. We know this. And what we know about this world and what makes this altar so wonderful that it speaks right smack into the middle of those fears, it goes right to the heart of the issue. It goes right into our fears, and David fully acknowledges that he is terrified and he's afraid. And what does he do? We also know that as it speaks into this, we must lean into the reality that we live in this type of world. And we place our hope in Jesus that he will come again to make all things right. But until that time, we still live in a world where we are afraid of lots of different things for example, if our fear is heartbreak, what do we do? We run and hide from every relationship that we possibly can. We don't let anybody get too close. We don't let anybody in because I don't want my heart to be broken again. Now, we can play that scene out in any one of these things in guilt, in pain. And failure. I don't want to fail, so I'm not going to try. And we go into ourselves and we sequester ourselves from relationships, from the world, from each other, and from the Lord because it's just easier to be afraid than it is to be heartbroken, than it is to feel guilt and shame. This is inevitable because this is how fear works. We run from fear because fear is scary and we don't like it. So what do we do? What David says for us to do is to shift our fears, to shift our focus, to shift our focus to the right kind of fear, not the wrong kind of fear. He says this to us, Four times in Psalm 34, David provides us with the answer of what is the right kind of fear. Verse 7 gives us that answer. Two times in verse 9, he gives us that answer. In verse 11, he also gives us the right kind of fear. Have you noticed that? So just quickly take a look at verse 7, verse 9, and verse 11. What is the fear that David's talking about? Fear of the Lord. Now, is that fear the kind of, oh, no, I'm terrified of him, I'm going to run the other way? No. It's a different kind of fear. Another phrase, however, like this, this fear of the Lord, is another one of those phrases that we throw out there as Christians and just, hey, I think I know what that means. I, I'm pretty sure I do. And if I say it to somebody else, they maybe know what I'm talking about, maybe not. But it's just another one of those things that gets thrown out in the Christian believer world. So what does it actually mean? What does it actually mean to fear the Lord? What does it mean to make this a part of our lives? To not focus on the bad kind of fear, but the right kind of fear. We fear the Lord. David gives us this answer as well in Psalm 34. He spells it out for us fairly clearly if we take the time to look. In verse 1, he says, Fear of the Lord looks like blessing the Lord at all times. May your name always be on my mouth. This is to fear the Lord. In verse 2, it says, I will boast in the Lord. This is what it means to fear the Lord. Verse 3, I will magnify the Lord in all that I do. Verses 4 and 5, he seeks the Lord in all that he does. Even in his fear, he's seeking the Lord. Verse th- verses 13 and 14, he obeys the Lord in all of his statutes. In verse 22, excuse me, he trusts the Lord. And then what does he do? He takes refuge in the Lord. To fear the Lord is all of these things. To know and to fear the Lord is to bless Him, to boast in Him, to magnify Him, to seek Him, to obey Him, and to take refuge in Him. Not to take refuge in guilt or pain or failure or shame or losing control or death or being alone or heartbreak, but to take refuge in the Lord and to magnify and to boast His name. So then, what does it mean to really fear the Lord? There's this fundamental shift in how we look at the world. To fear the Lord means to shift our focus from from the all-consuming powers of the things that terrify us to focus on the person who can actually rescue us from our fear. So how do we get there? I came across this illustration this week, and I found it um, interesting and fascinating. I've never heard it in this way before, but a particular gentleman said that he would talk with his children about the difference between um, woe and wow. (laughs) To be able to describe this understanding of what the Lord is, he would talk about woe versus wow. So if you remember in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah says, Woe is me, I am nothing but a sinful person. How could you call me to take on this role of being a prophet? I am not worthy, I am terrible, I am no good, I am rotten, all these kind of things. And Isaiah says, I am not worthy, woe is me. How often do all of us feel that way in some way, shape, or form? I'm not worthy to be called to, to be a Christian in Arlington, Texas, to be a witness, to be a good husband or father, or whatever it may be, because we're driven by fear and we run away from it. And what he's saying is we need to shift our focus then onto the person who calls us to these things. He calls us to love mercy, to seek justice and kindness and to walk humbly with him. We all feel the woe, but then something happens. Something interesting happens. We come to a wow. We indeed are broken people who need grace and who need mercy. This is where the cross comes in. Look at verse 20 with me, if you will. Not a bone will be broken. We know that, don't we? On the cross, Jesus says, or Jesus does not have one single bone broken. He is strung on a tree. His wrists are pierced. His feet are pierced with grace and mercy for you and for me. And He did this out of love. And He did this... In his own accord, he laid down his life that we might be saved. And this then turns the woe to a wow. Wait a minute, Jesus did that for me even though I'm not worthy, even though I'm sinful and I'm afraid and I'm terrified, even though I don't look at him when I should be looking at him, he still went to the cross and died for me. But then the conclusion is, wow, this is what he's done for me. One person puts it this way or the same person who drew my attention to this illustration. The tension between the woe is me and the wow, he really loves me, he's really forgiven me, he's actually willing to use me to accomplish his person, gets to the heart of what it is to fear the Lord and to live in the tension of saying, above and beyond anything else, I fear you because you have done that for me. And then we long to delight in him. And we want to take his word seriously and to take it into our lives and then to focus on him. But this fear doesn't come easily, does it? We have to learn this. In verse 11, David says this is a learned thing. It's just, it doesn't come natural to us. And he says, I will teach you. Come, oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. The point is the fear of God is, is weird to us. It's, it's, it doesn't just come eating, like or naturally, like eating or something like that. We have to learn to fear the Lord. It goes against everything in our nature, and it's not just little kids that need to learn to fear the Lord, is it? I still am learning to fear the Lord. We all are learning to fear the Lord, and we need to always be learning on what it means. To boast in the Lord, to take refuge in the Lord, to magnify the Lord, to seek the Lord, to take refuge in the Lord. This is an everyday learning experience for each and every one of us. But then that fear of the Lord is our very security. Look at, just quickly, I'm just going to run through a couple of verses here. Verses 15, 17, 19, and 22 all talk about how the Lord, the fearing of the Lord, is our security. Over and over again, the psalmist speaks of God's delivering us, hearing us, rescuing us. We're not alone. We don't walk around aimlessly in this world just on our own volition and our own accord and our own fears and anxieties. But no, the Lord is always there, delivering, hearing, answering when we're afraid. So now quickly, I want to shift to the other focus here in Psalm 34. So we're molded and shaped by our fears. We're also molded and shaped by our desires. This is the the other section of Psalm 34. We started saying that we're shaped by these two things, and we saw in our fears, we saw wrong kind of fears, and we saw right kind of fears. The same then can be said about our desires, And how David acknowledges this very thing in Psalm 34. The wrong desires are not just desiring what is evil. We don't say to ourselves, I desire destructive things in my life and I'm going to set out for that. I would dare say none of us in this room have that ambition. I hope to be evil today. But wrong desires are taking what is good and making them into something else. And desiring them to such a degree that now they become the very thing that we desire. And we can run that all across the map, plug that into a formula money, marriage, sex, power, control, worship, family, jobs. This is what we do we take good things and we make them the ultimate thing. That's the wrong kind of desire. This is not what we need to be about. And then, when those things don't meet our satisfaction, they don't fill the hole that we're trying to to find by either running away from our fears or running towards things that aren't supposed to be our desire, then we get angry and we get frustrated and we get anxious and we get scared all over again, and the cycle just continues all over. Unfortunately or fortunately, desire is a deep part of our humanity but desire can be derailed so quickly. So this morning, I don't want to spend a great time on the wrong things because David doesn't spend a lot of time on the wrong things. Rather, he spends a good amount of ink on what are the good desires. And it starts again with the question, who among you, what man, what woman, does not desire a good life and a long life? That, by nature and by definition, is what? A desire. It's a good desire. David's not saying desire is bad. He's saying we just need to focus our desire. When I go to a new restaurant, or maybe even a restaurant that has um, a number of different draft beers, I like to get what they call a flight. A flight is small portions of six or eight different kinds of beer where you get to taste a little bit of it. And you, through all of those tastings, you get about a glass of beer. But you're able to have more and different kind of tastes. You're able to taste this kind. You're able to taste this kind. And we get an understanding of what this looks like. But if you get a flight of beer or a flight of whiskey, whatever it may be, you don't get a whole glass. You just get a taste. And there are some times in one of those samples of the flight of beer... If you've had one before, you're like, this is really good. I want a whole glass of that right there because that's really good. But you only get a taste. David in Psalm 34 says to us in a very famous and well known verse taste and see that the Lord is good. Not just a little flight, but a pint. Come and taste and see the Lord. What David is saying is that we must come with more than just a taste. He invites us to come and taste all of Him. Everything that He has. He says, come and drink of the water. Drink of the living water. Come and drink of this. One commentator's quote says this, this coming to Jesus about tasting, it's, it's a willingness to unclench our white-knuckled grip from those things that we say, I have to have this. I have to be married. I have to have kids. I have to have the respect of my wife or my husband. I have to have kids who are doing well in school. I have to have the position in my job. I have to have this kind of relationship. I have to have this, or I won't be happy. Tasting and seeing Jesus is responding to all of those white-knuckled grips and saying, Lord Jesus, I come to you with a desire that you created within me that you and you alone would satisfy me. This is what it means to taste and to see that the Lord is good, that He fills our right desires, our one big hole that we're all longing for and missing, that He alone can fill that up with living water, with Himself. David says this in verse 10. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. The imagery is very easy in this section. Lions, if you know lions, they're capable of just going and taking whatever they want. They're big enough, they're strong enough, and they can do it. But David says, even they, those who you expect to be the most competent and most capable, even they suffer want and hunger. Even the ones who are the most capable, the strongest, the most powerful, still are left wanting if they're not tasting and seeing and drinking of the water of Jesus Christ in his life. Three times the psalmist says, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. No good thing does he withhold from those who fear him. No good thing does he withhold with those who walk is blameless. Taste and see. But we've heard that before too, if you remember. The enemy, back in the garden in chapter 3, he said exactly the same thing to Adam and Eve. It's the very thing that tempted them. Taste it. Taste it. And then you will see. Taste the fruit, and then you will see everything that you need to see. But that's also not the desire that we have. You see, because that's what the enemy does. He takes our good desires and he twists it. And he, and he misshapes it. And he makes it to seem like it's something that we want and that we need and that we desire. But it's completely a lie. The thing that we want and the thing that we need and the thing that we absolutely desire is to fill the hole in our lives that only Jesus can fill. To have the, 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 the kind of water that quenches our thirst. So the question for us this morning is, what is it that you want to taste and see today? What are you pursuing today? How are you going to have a long life and a good life? The psalmist answers that too. In verse 2 it says, let the humble hear and be glad. In verse 11, come, O children, and listen. You see, what it looks like to live a long life and a good life is to humble ourselves before the Lord and before each other and to taste and to see that He is good. And it's only those who come to Jesus in complete and utter humility and recognizing the knowledge that He alone is the one that can fill our hearts and our desires, to move us away from our fears and move us to Himself. In verses 15 and 17, it says the righteous do that. In John 10, it says, I have come that you may have life. This is Jesus talking. I have come that you may have life, that you may enjoy life, that you may have an abundance of the full until it overflows. That's what it looks like to have a long life and a good life, is to have Jesus fill us with abundance until it overflows. This is the definition of the good life. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come, all those who fear. Come, all those who are anxious and tired. Come and drink. Come and taste. Come and see that he is good. And then we end where we began. And Psalm 34 was written by an anointed king, the King David, right? An anointed king, not king yet, but an anointed king who pretended to be an insane person to save his own skin. An amazing story, but then a thousand years later or so, give or take, the true anointed king came, not to pretend to be something, not to pretend to be something he wasn't, but to actually become something that he was not. I love that quote, it's not mine, but he became sin. He didn't pretend to be a madman. He actually became and took on flesh. Not to pretend to be, not not to pretend, but to actually become all of our sin, all of our shame, and all of our death. Not to save himself like David did, but what? To save you and to save me. And then he says, Come, taste, and see that he is good. So let's all stop pretending. And let us focus our gaze and our hearts and our lives on the one that can actually rescue us from our fears and our wrong desires. And may we all be filled by the living water of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace and for your mercy to us that you came and took on our sin and our death and you rose victorious from the grave. Lord, there are not enough words in the tongues of men that can describe how grateful and humbled we are by that reality. So Lord, we pray that You would mold us and shape us to be more like You. We pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen.